Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one insightful page of Talmud each day. And in today's page, Bava Kama 26, the rabbis teach us a startling lesson. Here it is. The legal status of a person is always that of one forewarned. Therefore, whether the damage was unintentional or intentional, whether he was awake while he caused the damage or asleep, whether he blinded another's eye or broke vessels, he must pay the full cost of the damage. Wow, talk about passing harsh judgment. With oxen, we have spent much time learning in this year tractate, we know that there are two categories. There are innocuous beasts, sweet, docile, the sort of animal who will never stir up any ruckus. And then there's the famous or infamous forewarned ox, an animal you already know gets in the habit of starting up trouble. And if you know your ox is forewarned, the rabbis tell us you bear responsibility. There's a difference in the damage that you have to pay if you already should have known that the animal will cause all kinds of trouble. But with people, apparently we are all forewarned. We are all being human, likely to lose it at some point and intentionally or otherwise cause great damage. We are all, in other words, potentially guilty of something. It's a dire moral warning, but it can also skid rapidly into conspiracy theory, which loves to dabble in the morally gray zone where everyone is a potential suspect. Take, for example, the Kennedy assassination, a personal favorite subject of obsession for me. We very recently, just a week or so ago, marked the 60th anniversary of this collective national trauma. And yet, we have so many open questions and so many new revelations still floating about. And an official report that is still sealed six decades later, unavailable for public inspection. But what is it like to have this national trauma also be your own family history? What is it like to live surrounded by conspiracy theories that insist that if we're all forewarned, then maybe your grandfather is an assassin or maybe your grandma is an accomplice? It sounds crazy, but for one American, it's not a theoretical question. She's Alexandra Zapruder, and if you recognize her very famous last name, it's because her grandpa shot what is arguably the most consequential home movie in history – capturing the president's assassination on film. Alexandra wrote a book, 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zapruder Film. And she joins myself and my colleagues, Stephanie Butnick and Joshua Molina, to talk about, well, that forewarned feeling. Have a listen. Alexandra Zapruder, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. I feel like you have one of the most famous last names in America. Does it feel that way to you? Uh, It can feel that way. And I think it feels that way more among a certain demographic. That's sort of how I learned what the Zapruder film was as a child, because I saw people reacting to my parents using our name. When my book came out, you know, I could no longer be at all annoyed by it because I had entirely brought it upon myself. So the book is 26 Seconds, obviously the title from the most famous 26 seconds of footage in world history. Why not? As you're growing up, at some point, it begins to dawn on you that there are people like me out there 
who are completely obsessed with this and who spent many, 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 many days of their lives parsing over every frame of said 26 seconds. And as someone who is, you know, growing up and training to be a professional historian, writer, is that a shock to you? Is that troubling? Is that an object of curiosity? You know, I don't think I really realized too much about this until I worked on my book. I don't think I realized what the Zapruder film is in the world until then. It was always something that was off stage, compartmentalized, separated. I knew, and of course, I lived through the 1990s when, you know, there was a lot of media coverage. Our family was embroiled in this big battle with the federal government, and I saw all of that happening. But, you know, one of the experiences that I had that was so strange about working on the book was realizing just how much had been written about the film, not just about the film as a conspiracy or not conspiracy as an assassination record, but also all the other ways in which the film, you know, had shaped American life, questions around media ethics and around film and art. And, you know, it was features in, in you know, Don DeLillo and the movie Blow Up. I mean, there are all these ways in which the film was sort of a touchstone And I really didn't know that. And that was very surprising, shocking, in fact, to me. But it also justified the work, you know, because in some ways it made me think, oh, there's a much bigger story here than just the story of our family and even a bigger story than the story of the assassination. But, you know, the story about how this object itself became what the great Art Simon called a a secular icon, really. What is the greatest misapprehension about the film? I mean, the greatest misapprehension about our family is that we were always in it for the money, that we were money-grubbing Jews who, you know, made a profit off of the murder of the president. Oh, my God. And I'll tell you something. The last time that I saw that was about four months ago, a comment on a video. Had a feeling you were going to say something like that. Yeah, the video that I gave to the Sixth Floor Museum. And when the book came out and I stupidly looked at the comments, which I know you should never do, It was a super wonderful night at the Sixth Floor Museum. My whole family was there. It was the launch of the book. And I found that it was online. And so I started looking through comments. And then there it was. You know, like Zapruder was a Jew. And this family, that's what they're all about. Just getting as much money as they could. So, you know, I think I wouldn't say that I was motivated by an idea to like set the record straight. You know, that's really so reductive and simplistic. I actually really wanted to dig into, to really dig into the questions about the money. And really grapple with it. You know, how how do you make sense of it? Because our family did profit financially. I mean, you can't say that we didn't. And so how do you make sense of that? And as people who care a lot about being good people, those were questions that I really had to ask. And it's funny, I even, like I asked my cousin, who's an Orthodox rabbi, for a responsum on it. I'm curious, tell me, you know, is there a moral dilemma here? Which, of course, he didn't feel that there was. <laughs> But which was a big relief to me. To me, it speaks to the many ways the video has has gotten part of this sort of warped, deeply American, suspicious darkness. Do people seek you out? People who have alternate theories about what happened that day? Yeah, Um, I definitely get emails from people with their pet theories. And recently, the most offensive set of them have been that my grandmother was the babushka lady. Wow. Again, this like completely outrageous, outlandish idea. That That is amazing. But there is always, there are people who emerge and the implication is either your family was profiting from it. There's no other way to understand the nuances of this or your family was behind it. And that's pretty 
pretty minor. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. It, it comes up and there's a big trope, I guess I would say, that that has been around on the internet for a long time that because my grandfather was Russian. He, he literally shot Kennedy. Literally shot Kennedy. That, that has been said. Although, and I will say, it's so funny to me because like my grandfather was just allergic to, like he hated the Soviets and he hated Russia. I mean, he, he fled from Russia and he was had a traumatic childhood there. And, you know, the idea that he would somehow be like aligned with these dark Russian forces to take out his hero, the president, is so completely insane that you can't even really give it a lot of credence because it just bears no relationship to anything that is at all true. I'm embarrassed to ask, I don't know who the Babushka lady is. Yeah, she's a lady who shows up in some of the images from that day wearing a headscarf and the implication or the idea is that there was something in that that was a message, right? I could, I could tell you later, Stephanie, but but it will require about three hours of piecing all these <laughs> things together. So meanwhile, Alexander, I, I want to ask you this. I recently felt that my children have reached the age, they're 12 and 10, uh, where I could begin kind of indoctrinating them with my own fascinations. Fantastic. And so we had a very long Who Killed Kennedy conversation. To them, it was really weird that there was only one guy with a camera. It's like, of course, did everyone take out their phones and like film this amazing thing? What do you mean only he had the little, you know, a millimeter thing? So when you kind of talk about it and think about it in, in perspective of today, is it also kind of a document of a of a totally different way of being in the world, an unmediated way? He wasn't the only one filming that day by any stretch. I think there were 19 or 20 other people along the route who were either partially filming or who had took photographs that day. And those records have been put together, you know, to try to piece together what happened. What was unique about his film is where he was standing and the fact that he captured the entire arc of you see the president before, you know, waving with Mrs. Kennedy, then they go behind the sign, then they come out, it's clear the president has been shot. And then there's that sort of eternal moment before the the mortal head wound happens. And then they go off and Jackie's on the back of the car. And I believe that the reason people think it's the only film is because it's the complete narrative of what happened. And I mean, it just stands in for all of the others, but it really isn't the only film that was taken that day. And I think that's just important to say. Having said that, certainly I thought a lot about the ubiquity of, you know, cell phones now and records. And every time there's a police shooting of an unarmed civilian, you think like, oh, there it is again. That's the Zapruder film again. You know, everybody is an Abraham Zapruder now. Everybody's walking around with this potential to capture a moment on film that will have some kind of significance. And certainly the film was not like that. And what makes it the most not like that is not that it was the only one, but that it was film, that it wasn't on a cell phone and it couldn't be you know, uploaded instantly right. onto the internet. That And the very idea, for example, that the American public didn't see the film as a film for 12 years, 12 years. I mean, that is something that people in our generation just, it's even for me, and I was, I lived before cell phones, even for me, that remains a, a surprising piece of information. One of the things that, that I found most fascinating about the film was the way that the film raised all kinds of issues about the limits of visual of a visual record, right? So we have this film that is supposed to tell us what happened. 
It's supposed to record what happened. And yet it only raises more and more questions. And it's almost an existential question about what are the limits of visual representation? What can and can't be captured on film at all? This film is like a, it's like the story of the frailty of human existence. You know, you have this incredibly beautiful couple on top of the world. It's a beautiful sunny day. They're sailing down the street. And in 30 seconds, it's over. He's dead. His He's been shot and killed. And she, the most glamorous, exquisite woman in the world, is sprawled on the back of the car. You couldn't write, you couldn't create a more potent visual record of how quickly our lives can be upended and how frail and fragile everything really is. And I thought a lot about that in the context of 9-11 and the Challenger and other touchstone events that remind us of our mortality and our frailty. Nobody ever talks about that part of the film, but that to me is what is so powerful. And I think that's why we keep coming back to it because, you know, you kind of want it to end a different way every time. You kind of start watching it and think like, maybe that long moment before the final terrible shot, maybe somehow this is going to turn out differently and it and it never does. Well, Alexander Zaprudo, you took it all on and we're very grateful to you for it and we're very grateful to you for being our guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you are really going to love the new book just published by me. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. You can order it now at your local bookstore or directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is, you know, a smile. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs and other swag at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. Talmudic.